0: Good morning, as Grant said, we're continuing in Exodus, and we are in Exodus uh, 34, that was the passage that was read, and I will say this, if you are following, we have said this three weeks in a row now, but it is true, and it remains true, the narrative gets weird in Exodus 34, and it kind of becomes difficult to follow, and you're maybe wondering, like, how are we tracking with this, and so I'm going to cover chapters 32, 33, and 34, you may have a lot of questions like, what does it mean that the sins of the fathers will be carried out from, like, the third and the fourth generation? I did some reading on some of these things and some of the other stuff in 33 and 34. If you want to talk about those things, uh, feel free. I would love nothing more than to talk to you about those things. I mean that. Anna probably means it too. Talk to, you talk to me about it, so I don't talk to her about it is probably what she wants. Um, I've made that joke before. You guys know that's true. So... Just to give you an idea of what we're doing, I'm not going to exegete what was just read verse by verse, but we are going to look at this whole section and get to sort of the climax. Because here's the thing, 34, what was just read, those verses, especially verses like 4 and 5, right? We sang it this morning from, that was Psalm 145. We're going to, it was hinted at in Psalm 103 is our call to worship. It's in a ton of worship songs. It is the most repeated passage in all of Scripture by a long shot. Like there is no other section of verses that gets repeated as often as Exodus 34. We've talked about this covenant language and we've tracked covenants throughout like the time of Exodus. And this is like the covenantal language of Yahweh. And we've talked about the name of Yahweh, right, and all of this thing. And this is this moment and in the Hebrew, there, you see this sense and you get this idea that what is happening here with Moses and with the Lord in this moment is, is they're knowing each other intimately. Moses is saying, I want to know you, and, and Yahweh is setting him up. And he's saying, finally, here in this moment, in front of my people and all of this, it's so that they will know my name, they will know my name, they will know my name. And he finally, in front of Moses, declares his name. And when he declares his name, he declares his character and his nature. And so like this is the culmination in a lot of sense of like where we've been going in Exodus, is that Yahweh finally comes and reveals Himself. And so we're going to look at this passage, because to really get what's going on here, as you guys know, and this is where I insert the point where we have to know the context, right? So we're going to start in chapter 33, because this is our little section. So reminder, in the narrative so far, We know last week, because Molly did such a wonderful job of telling us, we we talked about the tabernacle. And this is where it gets weird. And we talked about this uh, probably like four or five weeks ago. Exodus starts to do this thing where it's jumping forward and it's jumping backwards. Like it's kind of going back and forth. And it's like, are we in future time? Are we in past time? And we all know good TV shows that do this, good movies that do this. You kind of like, it moves back and forth. Are we in the future? Are we in the past? Is this a flashback? I think of like loss and things like this where we're like, oh, are we dealing with flashbacks, flash forwards, somebody seeing something? And in the movies and TV shows, they do this as a way of like intentionally kind of like, not that they don't want you to get the story. They want you to understand the story. They're phenomenal storytellers. But it's int- confusing because it forces you to ask a different set of questions. It's one of the beautiful things about Hebrew scripture is Hebrew scripture does not intend in and of itself to be like on the surface, just an obvious narrative. And the reason is not because the writers of the Hebrew text wanted you to leave being confused and like it was some sort of veiled message. What they wanted you to do is they wanted you to come back to it again and again and read it again and again and to meditate on it and to discuss it with somebody uh, Eugene Peterson has this beautiful uh, phrase that he talks about where it's like a dog growling over its bones. You know, you've seen this. When they're excited, and they just want to chew on it. And then it's a title from Eat This Book. And he gets that idea from a Hebrew word in the Psalms that David uses that he talks about, I will chew on your law. I will meditate on your law. And it's the same idea as, as an animal growling over its food and savoring it, devouring it. And this is what we're supposed to do with Scripture. And so it's not that we're supposed to be confused. And not everyone has to have a master's in divinity to read the Bible. It's not what I'm saying. It is helpful to use your tools and your resources uh, when reading Scripture as it is with anything else. But it is intended to be something that you wrestle with, that you meditate on. And this was an oral culture. And so most of this was passed verbally as they would talk and they would retell. And it was a narrative culture. So they told stories. We miss the, the beauty and the, like the grandeur of telling stories. A lot of us don't know our own stories well. And we would do well to learn what it means to be caught up in the grand story of things. And so there's this moment here where it's like, what's happening? And so let's just Earlier in Exodus, in one of the sections we saw, they finally get to the foot of Mount Sinai. And this is full circle back from when Moses is at the burning bush. Here in this moment, at the foot of the mountain, to help you bring clarity and understanding, the Lord ascends onto Mount Sinai. There's smoke, there's fire, everybody knows the presence of the Lord is near, he is pres- and they can all see it. And the Lord descends somehow in that smoke and that fire and His spirit and mystery, and He declares ten words is the way the Hebrew people would talk about it. We know those ten words as the Ten Commandments. So the people of God at the foot of the mountain all together hear the ten words that are the ten commandments one time. And we read that passage and we talked about it. We didn't read that passage, but we talked about that section of the Bible. And we, in in this story, in this narrative, it's in sections uh, 24, chapter 24, right? No, that's where it ended. Um, So there's this moment where we see that the Lord has come down, speaks to the people, gives them their words... We can all acknowledge it. Let's let's take a minute. They're they're singing deep and wide, and it's probably Judah doing the metal version of it, because uh, he's destined to have a double bass and a uh, he will be the, the screamer, not the clean vocalist. Uh, for all my seeing kids, you guys know what I'm talking about. Uh, but so they they come to the mountain, spirit ascends, and he speaks these ten words. And the Israelite people say, we're in, we'll do it, we'll follow what you say. And then he says, okay, come up the mountain. And they say, uh, not so fast. Moses, you go for us, because if we go up that mountain, we're all going to die. So then Moses goes up the mountain, and he's up, and we talked about this, and he ascends up and up and up and, and higher and higher and higher and gets up to the very top, and he has six days where he has to wait, and like, everybody's going with him, and there's groups that are kind of falling back. And this is, as Molly talked about last week, it's where we imprint some garden imagery, Mount Sinai imagery, tabernacle, and what will end up being the temple imagery. There's all this overlap where you can just map them on top of each other, and it works. And so he finally goes up, and he enters into the cloud and smoke, and he goes into there for 40 days. I made this joke then, I'll make it now. You would be right to assume, along with the Israelite people, that that man is dead and not coming back. Because he has just crossed a threshold that human beings are not supposed to cross. Also, if you saw somebody walk into smoke and fire, you would assume they were dead. You would assume that was it. Especially if they do not come back for 40 days and 40 nights. Because mind you, though that seems very significant to all of us, that is not yet a significant idea for them. They're not like, oh yeah, of course it was 40 days. Like We should wait on them just like Jesus went to the wilderness in the 40 years that we're about to wander. They haven't done that yet. So they go up, they assume he's dead. Now, while he's up there, presumably dead, is when we get the passages that we just had last week in chapters 25 through 31. And this is where Moses is called up into this realm, this weird overlap where he is actually seeing into what Eden and the Garden of Eden in Eden was actually supposed to be like. This perfect overlap where heaven and earth are combined and there's this traffic that is completely clean and available between humanity, the created, and the divine and the creator. And there's, this has happened here in this moment. And he's there and he's experiencing it and he's seeing things and he's called up into the heavens. And so then what the Lord says to him while he's there, is he says, okay, this is what you're going to do. You're seeing all of this and you're going to go down and make a replica of it you're going to then do all of this stuff, and, and we talked about there's all this imagery, and you guys should be really glad Molly did that sermon, and not me. I joked with her. It was 1140, and she was back there talking to me. We were done. We'd like wrapped up, and I'm like, listen, if I'd preached this section, we would still be here, because like I would have felt the need to go through why every tree represents something in the garden and all this overlap. So they go up, they're in there, and then he he's getting what is happening now simultaneously while he's up there receiving this vision experiencing all these things come down the mountain there's another narrative that is happening and this is our golden calf story chapter 32 what's going on in the golden calf is while he's up there the people are hanging out and they're like yo Aaron hey, aaron you're in charge And you are the one that needs to do something about this. Because that Moses dude that led us out here to die that we've been complaining about, he's gone. And you're next up. So, like, let's do something. And they convert or go back to wanting to worship something. And they begin to worship an idol. Now, I'm going to speed up and then we're going to come back and slow down. So then what happens? Moses, while he's up there, God is aware of it because he's all present, all knowing, all encompassing. And every moment is now for him. And so he says, hey, we're doing this really cool thing. People down there can't even follow it. God's angry, very angry. Moses is like, I'm sure it's not that big of a deal. Let's calm down. If you're a parent, you've probably been in this situation where you're like, seriously, chill. I know you've been home with them all day. Let's talk about it. And then you get home and you're like, okay, yeah, I'm going to yell at them too. Let's go. We'll do it together. So they come down. Moses is like, no, 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 no. Don't, don't. Like, you promised. Remember who you are, God. Remember, remember who you are. And they come down the mountain, and then Moses is really mad. And it's also up there while he's getting the tabernacle blueprint that he gets the ten words that God spoke to the Israelite people and the other 42 commands that he gives them on stone. Did God write it with his own hand? Why not? Okay, so he takes it down. They go down, and he's so angry. He throws them on the ground, and he breaks them. And then God's like, okay, Moses, you need to calm down. There's this interchange. Eventually what we have is Moses goes back up the mountain, and then we have the passage that was just read. We get this moment where God comes, and he declares that he is compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. But he will not acquit the guilty, right? But he he will give compassion again and again, even though it's not deserved. And so all of this that we see, this narrative that's happening, and all of the infidelity of the people of God is culminating in the compassion of Yahweh. This, these three passages or these three chapters in this passage are right to kind of ruffle our feathers a little bit, especially chapter 33, and we'll address that a little bit as we slow down. It, you should ask some questions, and you're right to do so. But hear me on this. In the Hebrew mind and in our mind today, what we should see is that the entire thing is pointing to and culminating in the compassion and the grace of Yahweh and how that stands over and against everything else and every other God that might exist in the ancient Near East. This is the point, is to see the compassionate God abounding in love and steadfast to generation after generation. This is who He is, and who he declares himself to be, and he will live into it. So, let's go back and slow down just for a moment and look at chapter 32 as the golden calf. This is a major shift and break in God's relationship with humanity. If you're reading the narrative, and as we continue, you will see that like everything changes after chapter 32. If you are a good Hebrew scholar or just a casual reader of the Bible you will see that there is a ton of overlap here in chapter 32 of Exodus and chapter 3 of Genesis. So we've been talking about all of the decreation and recreation, all of this overlap between the garden and God creating humanity. Scripture, they say in preaching class not to say things like, oh, Scripture's so beautiful, don't use all these, like, just, like, tell them why it's beautiful, but sometimes you read things like this, and I'm like, I don't know what else to tell you guys, it's just beautiful, like, it is amazing the way it does all of this thing, these callbacks, and the way it's interwoven, like, it just blows my mind to, to read and to dive into this, so what's happening is we see all of this creation, all of this stuff that's building up to you see that God is re-entering humanity and he's recreating and setting things the way they're supposed to be and then immediately you see this way of Genesis 3 and Exodus 32 they immediately split with what they're supposed to be and what they're supposed to do so they worship this golden calf and they are taking this moment where what they're doing is they're creating separation between them and God and so they take this moment And they say, we want to worship this calf. Now, in chapter 32, the language that we see being used in the Hebrew is this word Elohim, mostly. There's one spot where Aaron will respond in 32, verse 6, I believe if my memory serves me correctly. And he will say that we are to make this a festival of the Lord. And where it says, Lord, in your Bible, if you ever see Big L smaller capital O, smaller capital R, smaller capital D, that is Yahweh, which is the covenant name of God. If it just says big G, little O, little D, that's Elohim. Elohim is a general title for gods. Yahweh is always the covenant god. But Elohim can also be used for Yahweh, okay? So here's this interaction. They say, make for us a god that we can worship. And so Aaron concedes and he makes for him God. So the big theological question, or the, like the exegetical question for a fun, you guys use that one at lunch, is that you are asking, is their sin polytheism, that is that they are incorporating other gods and worshiping other gods, or is their sin idolatry, meaning that they created a graven image or a material image that is supposed to represent Yahweh. And you maybe have like thought about these terms before and maybe you just like blend the two together and and you can and that's okay. But in this moment it matters that we kind of separate the difference between polytheism and idolatry. I'm going to contend with you this morning and there are varying views on this as there are with most things in the Bible that I think the sin that the people of God are committing in this moment is idolatry not polytheism. Reason being is that one is the verse 32 chapter or chapter 32 verse 6 where Aaron says that this will be a day and a festival unto the Lord. Also, if you look, it is always singular. There's only one calf. So Elohim can be plural, or it's always plural, but it can be singular or plural. I know we're going into the weeds. So, in this moment... If it, is, if it always is plural, but it can mean singular or plural, you have to look at the context around it. The context around it is the fact that they're always referencing back to it in the singular. So if it is singular, then what they are doing is it is one singular calf that has been made and it represents one God. Why does this matter? Because if they are then worshiping a God that they have made, they are repeating The sin of Genesis 3. Because what they are doing is they are defining God in their own image, in their own terms. They are making for themselves a God of their own likeness or their own making. Now, why didn't they make it a human? Good question. I think it's probably because they just reverted back to what was the cultural norm that they understood and knew. They're not that far removed from Egypt. Egypt would have worshipped cows and calves, and they were linked to different Egyptian gods. There's also, it would have been linked to Baal and the Canaanite gods. And so I think just culturally, they're like, hey, people worship cows, but they are, hear me on this, I think in their minds, worshipping Yahweh. They are meaning to and they are intending to worship Yahweh, but they are not following the second commandment. Do not have any other gods before me. Meaning, do not create an image of a god and set it before my presence and my goodness to you. And so they are taking this thing and they're making something for themselves that they can see, that they can touch, that they can understand. They wanted a god that they could like make sense of. They wanted a god that they could reach out and grab a hold of. They wanted to define for themselves what was good and right and divine and what was wrong and evil and God since the beginning of creation and all through exodus and even up until now what he is inviting us continually into is to trust that he knows what is good and right and that we would give ourselves over to it but the great sin of humanity that we continually repeat on a daily basis among ourselves is that we attempt to define for ourselves what is good and right and to take that further I believe that we, uh, me I will say are ever tempted and like given to the propensity to make for ourselves a God that we can understand. A God that we can make sense of. A God that looks like culture around us. A God that is the same of what everybody else is worshiping. And we import our Christian beliefs, our theology, and our ideas... Onto or into a shape and a form that we go, yeah, 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 that's what everybody else is doing. Let's just make Yahweh look like that and it'll make more sense. And sometimes we do it overtly and that's when real problems begin to happen. And sometimes we do it much more subconsciously. We don't even realize we're doing it because just like the Egyptians, if they made it a calf for a reason, I think we would know. I'm using some holy conjecture here, okay? But I think that what is happening here is that they just were like, I don't know, what's everybody else do? Like, we need a God. Ours is gone. The dude that brought us out here is gone. So let's just make a God that looks like what everybody else is doing, and that will help us. I think they intended to and meant to worship Yahweh. I think they were well-meaning. I really do. I genuinely think that they were intending to do the thing that they were supposed to do, which was follow and worship Yahweh. Because they say, look, here is the God that led you out of the, the, the... slavery that brought you out here and then this sins gonna be repeated first time it gets repeated the language here this is beautiful again first Kings 12 Jeroboam it's when the southern and the northern kingdoms finally split he's mad and he's like hey we can't keep going down to Israel we don't like those guys anymore and he's like but my people need to worship someone And the language is identical here where he's gonna say so let's make for ourselves some idols and temples up here in the northern half of the kingdom so we don't have to go down there and be a part of all of that and there's this just splintering and severing that's happening and they're wanting to worship Yahweh then but they're wanting to do it on their own terms and in their own forms they're going back to what is culturally comfortable what is culturally acceptable what just makes sense and hear me in this is I don't think it's this like great like I think we can look back at the Israelite people and just be like, man, these guys were so dumb. Like, how did you just keep getting it wrong? But I think they were earnest. I think they were, they were, they they desired to do what was right. But it's just so easy and it's in humanity that we go back again and again and again to wanting to just do what we know and have experienced, what makes sense to us, what we can grab a hold of, what we can shape, what we can form. And you either love this about God or it will cause you to finally just go do your own thing and call it Christianity. Because Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the father of Jacob and Isaac, of Jesus, has no, like, no patience whatsoever. And has no intention of ever being anything more than unfathomable and mysterious and like wholly other than what we might know and understand. And he invites you into that. To be invited into mystery, into wonder, into holiness, into grandeur, and to see him as this thing that is beyond and outside of yourself. But the Israelite people fail to do so. And so as they do this, Moses comes down and he says to the people, Yeah, you guys have messed up. And there's this interesting part where we see that what he does is he calls the Levites to him. But we don't know that, he doesn't actually call the Levites. What he says is, any who are still loyal to Yahweh, come to me. So just as it was with the plagues, Yahweh is making a decision and a judgment on people for their apostasy and for their rebellion against what the created design and order is supposed to be. But before he makes a judgment, he offers a moment and an opportunity for Repentance. To come. To, to, to acknowledge that Yahweh is the one true God. And what we're told in the scripture and in the narrative of chapter 33 is that the only people that come are those of the tribe of Levi. So the Levites come and Moses then says, strap on your swords and go kill everybody. This is where you should pause. And you should say, whoa, 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 wait. I thought this was a compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And you should say murdering a bunch of people does not feel very compassionate, does not feel very abounding in steadfast love. In fact, it feels very violent. How are we back? I don't know. I have a couple of good guesses and things that I think we can glean from it, but this is one of those moments where I think I just read scripture and I go like, I, I'm going I'm to accept it for what it is, and I'm also going to trust that God's doing something here. Two things that I think that are happening that we should see. One is that all of the action in chapter 33, up until the climax of 33, which is right before we get into 34 and him declaring that he is compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, we see that the language being used in the text is always Moses. He's acting on behalf of Yahweh, but it is always Moses that is acting and that is doing. In the moment of grace and compassion, it is Yahweh that acts. The verbs are associated to him and are attributed to him. But up until this point, so what is happening? I think Moses is culturally responding to a cultural sin. And this is why the church gets messy, right? This is why people are hard. We respond in in like trauma does this, difficulty does this. Like we just go back to the scripts we know. I think Moses goes back. And I think in that one returning back to the things that we know and understand I think the second thing that the text is trying to get us to see is the overlap and the parallels between what's happening in chapter 33 and what just happened in the ten plagues. What They are begging for us to recognize because then immediately there's going to be a plague that is given to the people in the camp. What we should see is that there is this thing that happens when you begin to break from what God has called you to and the covenant that is given before you you begin to participate in the decreation of what God intended. Just like Egypt was the pinnacle. Pharaoh was like the pinnacle of what decreation leads to. And much of scripture is a story of decreation by humanity and recreation by the sovereign God. We decreate, we trespass, we overstep our bounds, we act and operate outside of what God has called us to and created us to and where he has set us in. We do not look and say these boundaries are my pleasant places, that the Lord has been good to me to set me here. We get put in our little boundaries and where we say that we're supposed to be humans and we go, eh, I think I'd rather be over there. And we begin to invade space that we are not supposed to be in. Ours, others, and God's. We start to try to operate outside of what we're intended to be and we trespass and we go over these bounds and we do things that we're not supposed to do and we define for ourselves what is good and evil and we revert back to what we know, what is comfortable, what is easy to do. And so Moses, I think in some sense, though he is acting in accordance with God, he is also reverting back to the way things were. And I think we should see that this is what happens when decreation begins. There is, a, there is something here that I think the Israelite people, the Hebrews, were supposed to see that you, if you continue in this way, you will be no different than the Egyptians. Just because you are called, just because you are set apart, does not mean that you get away with sin and we have to reckon with and understand as much as it really frustrates our modern sensibilities that in some way Yahweh dut, like judgment in some sense is a part of his compassion and in 21st century like that I, I don't like that part I'll just be honest I like I don't love that and I, I, I like when I get to passages like this I wrestle with it and I, I like I'm okay okay I gotta make sense of this And sometimes I just can't make as much sense of it as I want, but I just have to accept and understand that in God's sovereign design and plan, there is something that his judgment is a part of his compassion. And ultimately, I want that, right? Like, this is the, the apologetics answer of, like, you don't want rampant injustice to go unpunished. You don't want rampant, like, deflecting from who God intends to be to completely go unchecked or unpunished. And in that, what I take solace in is that book ending his judgment is compassion and grace and more compassion and grace. And that he promises that even though they have failed, he will not leave his people. And so I go, okay, there's, there's something going on here, but what the character of God is being revealed is his goodness. And somehow this is, though not the way I would do it, it it's doing something. And so that's what happens in chapter 33. They're they're forgiven or not forgiven. And this is the other thing, too. It says that they're going to kill everyone. But then it says 3,000 men that that day died. Quick math, in case you've lost score while you're uh, keeping up at home, there would probably be somewhere around 600,000 Israelites at this point at the foot of Mount Sinai. So the fact that 3,000 are all that they name as dead, like that is not everyone. So something changed in the process that it happened. There are theories and ideas of what's going on there, and we can talk about that later if you want. So they do the thing that they're supposed to do. They get the plague, and then God says, okay, Moses, that's it, you got to come back up. We're going to do this right. We're going to do what we're supposed to do. So he tells Moses, prepare yourself, get two more tablets, because you broke the last ones, which, by the way, is gigantic narrative symbolism for the fact that the Israelites broke the covenant. I think you all see that, but we'll name it anyways. And so then they go, and they take two new covenants, or two new slabs of stone, he goes back up the mountain. Now, here's what I want to say. At this point, everything's different. And you should begin to see how different this giving of the ten words and the ten commandments are compared to the first ten. First time they give it, down at the foot of the mountain, everybody's around. This time, only Moses gets to hear it. This time, Moses has to hear it all the way up. This time, there's this uh, kind of weird language about maybe God wrote it the first time on stone himself, but this time Moses is going to write it on the stone with the stones that he has prepared. Like, all this action, you begin to see this separation that's happening between God and the people that he had called out of Egypt. And there's this distance that begins to form, and there's this gap that is happening, and it begins to affect everyone, even Moses. Moses. And so then he goes up and there's all this stuff like he's been called up into the fire. He's been called up into the smoke. And now we we don't see that that's the case necessarily. It's not the same way because we then get in chapter 34 or leading up to 34. Moses goes up at the end of 33 and he says, Lord, show me yourself. The first time when he goes up, he's in it. It's everywhere. He's seeing something that like he shouldn't be seeing in some ways. He's seeing something that cannot be recreated out of material things down on earth. And now he's called up the mountain and he has to ask God to see him. And then God responds and he says, you can't see all of me. So let me hide you in a cleft. I'll put you in this rock over here and I will pass you by and you can see my back. And I will declare who I am as I pass you by. Like this is the language is all different. It's, it's totally like there, there's, there's space that has happened that can't almost be overcome, or at least it seems so. And in this language, you begin to see that now there needs to be a mediator. No longer is everyone being asked to come up. No longer are they allowed to hear from God themselves. And then even in this interplay between God and Moses, Moses is asking God to come down and God's like... I, I'm not going with you. I'll send that angel. Remember the the angel we talked about earlier in Exodus that was going to lead them to the promised land? That was supposed to be like God's presence with them. And now God's like, you know what? Like the angel will be enough. You just take him with you and like you guys will be fine. And Moses is like, dear God, no. Literally, in the most literal sense. Dear God, no. Please don't. We cannot go from this place without you. We have to have you. And so then what he does is it's the first time we see this begin to institute into the people of God is he says... Take my life if you can't go with us. And the sacrificial language starts to creep into the way the people of God are going to interact with God. And he says, okay, I see it. Like I, if you're willing to give up your life, I'll, I'll go with you guys. But there's going to be some rules. So he's going to come down the mountain. Next week we'll look at the end of Exodus 35 through 40. And what we're going to get is it's going to feel like a repeat of the section where we see God like, imp, like tell him like, this is what the temple is supposed to look like. This is going to be the building of the temple. But even in this, and we'll talk about this more, there begins to be this gap between the people of God. and Moses, you get this language of he would go out to the tent, this tent of meeting, and it's not the temple, it's not the, or the tabernacle. That's not been built yet. It's no longer up the mountain. Moses goes out and he meets with God in this other place. And like it becomes secluded, it becomes geographic, like there's a spot where it happens. And there's all this distance and all of the narrative throughout the rest of the Old Testament is going to be like predicated on what happens here in these few chapters in the declaration of who God is. And in that, we get the, the famous passage that we know of as readers of the New Testament. But after Yahweh passes, Moses comes down and he's unaware of it. He comes down and his face is shining. There's some crazy Hebrew stuff going on there that we'll just save the time. But if you want to talk about that too, let's just add that to your list of things if you're like, hey, I need to know more. Um, but there's this moment. He comes down and it's something about whatever the interaction was. It changed Moses in such a way that he has to veil his face. And this is like the final kind of like, and this really sets up tabernacle and temple language of what's coming. Of the, then now... It was Yahweh on the mountain, full display, fire, lightning, glory, all for everyone to see. But in that moment, now, not only is God not revealing himself directly to the people of God, he's now revealing himself through a reflection of Moses, which they are unable to even look at directly because of fear, because of being overwhelmed by it. There's something about it where he has to veil his face. And so the people have been reduced from just a few chapters, 40 days earlier, they are standing at the foot of the mountain and seeing the Lord descend on this mountain in smoke and fire, to now what they are being offered as a way to see who Yahweh is, is a veiled face of a human being that reflects some aspect of the glory of God. The New Testament writers are obviously going to make this connection, and this is why I said we know this passage. You fast forward, they reference it in a couple of different places, but the idea being that then now we no longer through Jesus Christ see through a veil. But the veil has been torn. It's Jesus on the cross. That's both in temple language and in this language. But the idea that we would continue to be a reflection of Yahweh to a waiting and wanting world remains true, that we stand in that line. But the beauty of it is, is that we are not the only way that people have access to that. That though we reflect who God is, God is fully available through the death resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we have access to the full glory as we know it through the narrative of Scripture and through Jesus. And yet, I think, as I said, that what we regularly do is that we revert back just like the people of Israel. Though we know, though we have the opportunity to see, what we regularly do, what I'm prone to doing, is that I'm prone to making a God that I can understand, that I can fathom, that I can look at. And I think God's inviting and begging us this morning to come and let us see Him for who He is. Just because this is culturally relevant, I'll say one little piece about this, and then we'll move to communion. With that understanding in mind, This is why when people come to me and they are deconstructing, as we socially talk about all the time, as they're breaking away from what we think is happening, this is why I don't start hand-wringing as a pastor and get all worried. Like This is why I look at them and go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, good, 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 good. Let that version of God be deconstructed. Let that small understanding you have be ripped apart. Because this is a long line of the prophetic narrative of them asking and begging That God would come and rend the heavens apart. This is Advent language. This is Lenten language. This is this idea that we all are culpable of this. I do this. I pray regularly, Lord, this Sunday, as we gather, let me see you afresh and anew. Let me see you right. Let me see you as you intended me to see and not in the ways that I make you, not in the ways that I form you, not in the ways that I put things on you that aren't yours, but allow me to see you. Allow me to understand you. And as so much of this is what's happening to us is that for too long, we collectively as the church, I think have started to import and put things on God and form for us a God that is a, a, ultimately a production of what we think God should be and how he should act. I'll quote it now because it came to my mind and I just read it to Jameson. But like, this is Chronicles of Narnia, man. Like when they look at the lion... And they're like, you, you can't control him. You can't, he doesn't just show up when you want him to show up. He doesn't just do what you want him to do. And they're like, yeah, but is he, is he safe, right? Lucy asked Mr. Beaver. Mr. Beaver says, safe? Who said anything about safe? But he's good, I tell you. He's the king. And this is what every Sunday when we come to the table, we're being invited into is to lay down our ideas and our understandings and what we think God should do, what we think God should function like, what we think everything should, our understanding of good and evil. And we submit to a God that is compassionate, abounding in steadfast love, slow to anger, that will love generation after generation despite their failures. And we're asked to open up our minds and to open up our hearts to, to believe in and to participate in and to trust into a God that we can never understand, that we can never fully grasp, that we cannot shape or form, and that here's the part that really gets a lot of us that we have zero control over, that will act as He intends to act, and all we can do is trust that we know He is as good as He says He is because that is the narrative we see repeated again and again throughout Scripture. And we standing here in the 21st century in Birmingham, Alabama, can trust and know that the Lord is good because of what we come and receive every Sunday. As the band comes back up and they play another song, we're going to come and receive the bread and the cup. And in this, we are receiving our mediator, our sacrifice, the one that made the way available for us to come and to see God fully. We see in the cross and in Jesus, God as he intended to be. God as he wanted us to know him. God as he is most uh, like, capable of being known. We see a God that is steadfast and compassionate, graceful, gracious and kind. Slow to anger, willing to come and allow any who are still loyal, the where you've come from, come and receive. Come and receive the body that was broken, the blood that was poured out in order that we might be able to live in this communion. And this is the beauty of it. This is what's so amazing. That overlap, that idea that heaven and earth would become unified, that, that there was this space where it's perfectly aligned, through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the coming of His Spirit, in these moments, we, in our own little ways, get to be that. That's why we say and pray repeatedly that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. And we, as we receive these elements, and as we participate in this, we become that very thing. These little outposts of these moments where heaven and earth overlap, and there's this traffic that begins to exist where the divine... And the the creation and the knowledge is filling us up. And we find in that this space in this moment where we see something. And then the Lord works and moves through us. And we become that reflection and invite others to come and experience it fully. And this is what we do here. We come and we receive from it and it transforms us and it changes us. There's something happening here where God meets us. He is present in this moment and in this space as we come to the table. And He's asking us that we would see Him anew and afresh and that we would let go of the small ways that we think we should be able to control Him and define Him and that we would trust. And sometimes that means doing things that we're like, I I don't get it. But the reality of it is is that we know that we're all prone to this and so we need these things in order to be able to find this and and to worship into this. And so as they play, I'm going to invite you to come, take a piece of the bread and the cup, go back to your seats, hold on to those elements, And in between the last two songs, I'll come up and I'll receive us. I'll lead us through the receiving of those. So come and receive the gifts of God for the people of God. Amen.